podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On this episode of The Darker Side of Boxing, we're discussing a hero in his home country of Venezuela, the explosive potential he had in the ring, a world champion who could potentially have gone on to have been a Hall of Famer. But he was also a man who was mentally unstable. Was he a killer who had finally snapped? And did he really kill his wife and then commit suicide? This is the rise and fall of El Inca, Edwin Valero. Welcome to the darker side of boxing with myself, Sean Bastow, and also co-host Johnston Brown for this episode to discuss the life, the times, and the murderous Edwin Valero. Johnston, it's a pleasure as always to, to get into the darker side of boxing and to go through stories that make your toes curl and make your hair stand up on the back of your neck. And the case of Edwin Valero is certainly no different than some of the other ones that we've covered. Yes, Edwin Valero. What can you say about Elinka? He was a troublesome man who many boxing enthusiasts will know about. Obviously, he was dangerous in the ring, and I think he was just as dangerous in the ring as he was outside of it. But yeah, a a real tragic story that we're going to go into here about Edwin Valero and his life, and, and obviously someone else's that he makes along the way. So, if you've not already checked us out on Twitter, you can follow us at darker underscore side underscore pod for all the latest episodes of the Darker Side of Boxing. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher. They're all there. You just type in the Darker Side of Boxing, you will find this podcast. Please leave us a rating and a review because it will truly help get the Darker Side of Boxing to many, many boxing fans out there. So, as always with the dark side of boxing then, we we will go through a little bit of the life and times, really, of, of Edwin Valero, first and foremost, and talk about what his life was like outside, what sort of led into the case of Edwin Valero. So, Edwin Valero was born Edwin Antonio Valero Vivas. He was born... In Bolero Alta, which was a small village in Meridia in Venezuela, on December the 3rd, 1981. Now, Bolero Alto is part of a parish named after Gabriel Picon Gonzalez, a war hero who helped win the Battle of Los Hocones in 1813. Lake Macaribo was less than 100 miles away, and it's a major shipping route to the ports of Macaibo and Cabimas. The surrounding Macaibo Basin contains large reserves of crude oil, making the lake a major profit centre for Venezuela. Now, at one point, Venezuela was actually the wealthiest country in Latin America, yet this oil-rich country had been on the brink of economic disaster for years. Luxury hotels stand side by side with slums, and its breathtaking beauty of mountains and lakes serves as a backdrop to one of the most crime-ridden countries in the world. A result of the 1970 oil boom, which quickly became overcrowded. Many young men became unemployed, and the next generation turned to a life of crime. 
Yeah, it's interesting, Venezuela. A very fascinating place, you know, for those that love Venezuela or love Latin America and delving into their history. It's definitely one country to do. And, and, and Edwin was a part of that. And he was born out of five. He was the third born out of five to Alicia and Antonio Domingo Valero. Now, they lived in a two-bedroom house in poverty. Now, from a young age, Edwin began fighting in the streets, probably around about the time when his father decided to leave the family home and he left the family home for another woman with no father to provide. Alicia was basically forced to move north to a place called La Palmita to work as a dishwasher. Now, Edwin and his older brother, Edward, sold fruits and spices in El Viga Railway Plaza to bring in some extra cash. And now, El Viga was a lively city, which most it was basically a bit of a real real eye-opener for a seven-year-old in Edwin Valero and with its factories and shopping plazas and universities and parks. And there was even a baseball stadium and a landmark cathedral of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Again, you know, <laughs> if you like your landmarks, and you know, I'm sure Venezuela is a beautiful place. Very dangerous at times at night. And I believe it's still pretty much the same today. Very difficult start. For Edwin and his brothers, um, obviously having to sell fruits and spices on in door to door at a railway plaza to get some extra money. So uh, very difficult times for him early doors. Now Edwin and his brother Edward also worked in a bicycle shop, which was owned by a former fighter, Dimas Garcia. Now El Viga is the second largest city in Meridia, and although elegant, it had a darker side, like many cities, with pickpocketers, kidnappers, drug dealers. Edwin was not earning a lot of money doing odd jobs, so it wasn't long before he was forced to turn to a life of crime. Valero began knocking around with kid gangs on motorcycles. He dropped out of school, drinking alcohol and taking cocaine at the age of only nine years old. Jesus. Absolutely crazy. Now, these wow. gangs these gangs would drive around the streets mugging people. And, you know, what was worse is that his mother, Alicia, knew that he was hanging around with some of these unsavoury characters, yet refused to believe he was as bad as them, saying Edwin was not a bad boy, just a little bit off. <laughs> I think he was a little bit more than off. Nine years old drinking and taking cocaine is crazy. I mean, obviously, Venezuela, a lot of those South American countries, obviously, cocaine was a... And coffee, it was obviously a, a huge amount of money. Probably a bit easy for, for Edwin to be dabbling in cocaine but the age of nine years old is incredible so moving on and by the age of 13 Edwin took up taekwondo and he actually had to drop out after his mum could no longer pay for his classes now there is a little bit of discrepancy here because apparently Edwin and Edward were homeless at times as well and uh, the, the taekwondo was apparently was kicked out of so you know some discrepancies but Edwin and Edward continued with their odd jobs and they began to sell garlic now on their route Edwin actually noticed a boxing gym, which was run by another former amateur boxer and Olympic gold medalist in the 1968 Games in Mexico. And that was Francisco Moracho Rodriguez. And the gym was offering free boxing lessons. So Edwin convinced Edward to go. Now, Oscar Ortega was the boxing coach at the gym at the time. And he took the boys under his wing, offering them a place to stay if they couldn't pay for their bus fare home or Possibly they were homeless and he gave them somewhere to shelter or he gave them food when they were hungry. And Edwin spoke of the time he discovered boxing. And he says, boxing just attracted me somehow. I decided to give it a try. One week later, 
I was living in the gym with Professor Oscar Ortega for me as a fighter. Ortega did try to keep Edwin out of trouble. As you could see, he had the potential, especially with that explosive power he had. Instead, Ortega found himself bailing Edwin out of the nick numerous times and actually reported 40 times on one police wow. record. He would rob university students at gunpoint or steal motorbikes and store them at the gym. All this was before he was even 15. Edwin wow. did eventually go to prison, but the crime he committed and the time he spent inside are uh, pretty sketchy. Some say stealing bikes got him six months. Others say for assaulting a woman at gunpoint got him seven. The details are unimportant, but the fact that he apparently shot and killed a rival over a stolen motorbike is... If those rumours are true, then he already had the capability to kill at a very young age, which is quite disturbing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, from 9 to 15, this, this kid has had more of a life, disturbing life, than than many so-called gangbangers that knock around today. So at 17 years old, Edwin was introduced to 13-year-old Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Carolina Barrera Finnell, by her sister as well, uh, Andreina. Their relationship quickly blossomed, and by the time Jennifer was 14, Edwin had actually convinced her to move away, for them to move away together, which was 26 miles away, west of Caracas. And she did, apparently, her parents weren't too keen at first. They gave him a little bit of hard time saying, how dare you take my 14-year-old child away, like many other <laughs> parents would have done, as we can all imagine. But eventually, they gave up and let him go. So, uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it's impressive that at that young age, that young tender age, she was able to take 26 miles away from her family. But, well, exactly. Wow. That, that was what they did. During all the arrests and possible murder and assault charges and finding the love of his life, Edwin ended up with an impressive amateur boxing record of 86 fights, 80 wins and only 60 feats, with 57 or 45 knockouts, depending on the source. And he won national amateur titles consecutively before heading off to Argentina to qualify for the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. He lost on points to end his Olympic dream before taking the wrong bus home from Caracas Airport only to get mugged for his passport money and silver medal. He did actually win the 2000 Central America and Caribbean Championships in Caracas, but he was like a bit of karma had come back to, to haunt him there straight away. <laughs> yeah, after robbing all those university students at gunpoint and he gets his silver medal nicked. I think that's got to be the worst thing. And I do wonder what on earth they were doing with that silver medal. Uh, I'm guessing they, I'm assuming they just sold it. But yeah, yeah, uh, definitely a bit of karma there. With the style made for the professional ranks, obviously, uh, that that knockout ratio it was a devastating knockout artist. And Edwin decided it was time to turn over. But on February 5th, 2001, was a date that I'm sure you'll never forget. He basically almost died. Now, Edwin was travelling at 50 miles per hour to the hospital to see his father when he came off his bike without a helmet. Now, there are two stories of what happened and both sound quite simply brutal. Now, either he crashed into a car and hit his head on the back windshield or he flew over the car and landed headfirst on the tarmac, throwing him 20 feet away. Now, when he arrived in the hospital, he had a fractured skull and doctors found a blood clot between his scalp and his skull. Now, this resulted in a routine operation where the clot was drained to reduce the swelling and he was discharged 13 days later. But wow, Sean, I mean, what the hell? How did he not die from that? I'm telling you now, this, this man at this point in time, 
was like as you yeah. said earlier, he'd already lived a life at that point in time, and somehow, some way, he he managed to to continue on, which I found quite unbelievable. So, as a result of that, it was obvious he was going to be out of the ring for a long time, and he wasn't able to get back in the ring for quite a while. So he was back to doing odd jobs. He had his son in this time as well, Edwin Junior, and he actually even enrolled in the army. But he was discharged dishonorably for fighting twice. Following being kicked out of the army, Edwin was quoted as saying, I like to hit men. It liberates me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, I'm not quite sure it's a childhood or the head injury now. I think it's a bit of both, but clearly, and obviously the cocaine at nine years old. I, I, from what I've read and what I've heard, I believe from nine years old he was taking cocaine and it continued. So, you can just imagine, with a head injury like that as well. So, so after a year and a half out of the ring, Edwin was given the Yorkshire by doctors to fight and he made his professional debut at Caracas on July 9, 2002, winning by a first-round knockout. By the time Edwin reached 8-0 in 2003, he had recorded eight knockouts, all coming inside the first round. One of his representatives contacted a guy called Joe Hernandez who was part of the Maywood Boxing Gym in Los Angeles and was asked if he could assist him with his trainer, Jorge Zerpa, for his American debut. Now, Hernandez remembered Edwin from the 2000 tournament in Caracas and was eager to see how he developed. He was immediately impressed and he even compared him to Michael Jordan and he said it was that kind of ability. Hernandez wasn't the only one to be excited. Doug Fisher from the Ring magazine, described Valero's ability in his column for ESPN back in 2004. Valero's aggression, bursting speed, brute strength and intensity reminded me of the lightweight version of Shane Mosley. His poise, technique, balance and craftiness reminded me of the 97-99 to version of Floyd Mayweather. So he was already being compared to great wow. fighters at this point. It was, you know, looking at the guys that were around at that time and looking at the versions of them through certain periods of time, it was already being compared to some some of the guys that have gone on to become absolute greats in the sport. So, when inspiring, Edwin Valero was, was quite well known for, for not holding back against anyone, no matter who they were. And by the time Juan Lasgano, the Hispanic causing panic, was drafted in because he was bigger, Edwin had already sent several sparring partners packing. Didn't take long for Lasgano to go the same way. Rumour has it, that he left his gloves and the other boxing gear behind, never to claim them after a horrid session. So, Juan Lascano, for any UK fight fans, will probably know him from fighting Ricky Hatton and his comeback fight after losing to Floyd Mayweather. Juan Lascano, with one of the great boxing nicknames, the Hispanic causing panic, certainly had a lot of panic when he went in the ring and sparred Valero because (laughs) he left all of his shit back there in the gym because he must have been beaten from pillar to post to the point where he was thinking, fuck this, I'm going. Yeah, and and there is quite a lot of coverage on YouTube where you can actually see Edmund Valero sparring with Juan Lascano, the Hispanic comes in panic. Brilliant name. You're right, he must have been in a panic because he obviously didn't go back and collect his gear. But yeah, he, he was uh, quite masterful, Edmund Valero, in the ring in those sparring sessions from what I've seen. And yeah, he caused some real legends some trouble now. There was a trio uh, at the gym at the time in LA, and the tr- the trio of Valero, Ponce de Leon, for people that didn't know he was another fighter around at the time, Hernandez, um, I said a trio, there was an ex- and the extra guy, which was Mike and Chinado. Now, they spent a lot of time together, and things 
could get out of hand, especially when alcohol was involved. And, and again, Doug Fisher actually recalled of an incident in a hotel once. He said, there were chairs turned over and blood everywhere. These three, they had a particular dysfunction with alcohol. When they got drunk, they got crazy. And Fisher went on to say, the story I heard was that De Leon bit off a piece of Valero's ear and that's why he started to grow his hair out. Now, when Doug Fisher described Edwin's temper on alcohol, he reckoned he became a manic. I say the trio, there's the actual fourth guy in there, but they were an absolute bloody nightmare. And by the sounds <laughs> of it, once they got a few tricks in them, I believe Ponce de Leon obviously felt, he felt like being a bit of Mike Tyson that night and decided to bite off a bit of Edwin Valero's ear. So, yeah, crazy, crazy crew. I never, I never knew why Valero started growing his hair out. And now, obviously, hearing that, it makes complete sense because he never actually had his hair grown out the way we remember him at the end of his boxing career and his and his life. So it was crazy to hear that little story about the four of them there being absolute fucking nutcases and fighting each other's ear off after a few drinks. Craziness, isn't it? But then what do you expect with a guy who was taking cocaine at the age of nine years old? Amongst the madness... Edwin was quiet without a drink, and he was respectful, shy even, but then he would speak of his criminal past. He reckoned he knew 30 people who were dead and buried and in El Viga. You had to be either a drug dealer or an assassin. He claimed a contract had been taken out on him, but the killer who had accepted the contract was a friend, and he couldn't do it. Some of these stories are obviously quite questionable, but yet plausible as well because hearing about his past it kind of makes you believe that maybe that was the case yeah it's sort of one of those he did like to tell stories i mean i believe he spoke a lot about his father not being around when that wasn't necessarily true his father did leave the family but apparently he was still sending money and he did want to see the other kids so but he would say that he was doing it just because he wanted to create an aura he wanted to be the bad guy which is something that no one at the time was around everyone was all about money you, know, you had your Jones Jr., your Mayweather's, it's all about making money, whereas Edwin Valero was a different sort. He was a Tyson sort, wasn't he? You know, the sort that sold tickets, and I think that was what he was trying to do. But saying that, we see what Venezuela was about. It was a very difficult place to bring up. It would not surprise me if a contract was put out, and it was his mate. You know I mean, it wouldn't surprise him. Man, <laughs> Edwin did make his American debut in the end, and it was on July 19, 2003, Activities Centre of Maywood, on the undercard of the show, headlined by Ponce de Leon. He won by a first-round knockout yet again against Emmanuel Ford uh, to go 9-0. and Three more fights in America followed to go 12-0 and with 12 knockouts, all in the first round still. Now, inevitably, he started to grow a bit of attention and he signed a contract with Golden Boy Promotions with the plan to fight on HBO, I think it was the After Dark as well, in New York, but in January 2004, it was terminated. Valero had basically fouled his pre-fight physical with the New York State Athletic Commission due to the tiny blemish on his brain. The recommendation was the denial of his boxing licence and an indefinite medical suspension refinement in the United States. Now, Dr. Barry D. Jordan advised Edwin to retire as his health was at great risk. Obviously, that little emission on his brain came from that horrible motorcycle accident he had earlier in his life. It's quite scary to really think about what what's happened with Valero and the way things have panned out as we go through the episode. But at this point in time, people were making a decision for him 
for him not to fight anymore and to get out of the ring. And it's interesting that you say that and you talk about that decision being taken out of his hands there. Because when we go through this story of Edwin Valero's life and his ending, it makes you wonder whether if he was continued to be suspended, whether that would have changed his life. I mean, there's been so many well-publicised incidents. The the one that springs up to mind is the, the tragedy of Chris Benoit and his family and the, the way they checked his brain after he'd passed away and now it was like the brain of a 70-year-old, even though he was only 39 at the time. So it's quite scary to think that at that time they denied him the licence and it was the right thing to do. But between 2004 and 2005, Edwin remained in L.A., undergoing several neuro examinations where he was judged to be fit to fight, but the New York ruling would not budge on their decision, resulting in a long delay for his career. After being dropped by Golden Boy, Edwin worked as a cabbie to earn ends meet for his small family. Another year and a half had gone past before Bolero actually fought in his 13th pro fight in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Edwin fought back in Venezuela, Japan and even in Paris, where he broke the Guinness World Book of Records for 17 first round knockouts wow i mean that is first round knockouts consecutively 17 i mean that's impressive and i believe that guinness book of record is still around today well it was around enough i believe someone broke it and went 19 fights but or 18 fights but either way it was a it was a good start in terms of his career when you look on paper but when you look at what he'd been through and obviously with his indefinite suspension from the states uh, where he really was desperate to get a career it was a bit of a bad start. So Edwin obviously needed a promoter that he trusted. And after the debacle with, with Golden Boy, obviously hiring him and then dropping him, he ended up signing with a Japanese promoter. His name was Akko Hinko Honda. Now, when Valero was asked about Japan, he said, I do not really have any friends. Any trainer in Venezuela, even if they don't like my personality, can't say anything negative about my training habits. Mr. Honda, being a businessman, I think was attracted to me because of my work ethic. During this time of fighting in Japan, his first round knockout streak ended and his 19th fight, he changed his name to El Colli, or the Hummingbird, a nickname amongst others in the coming years, but everyone knew him as El Inca. Even his family referred to him as El Inca. On August the 5th, 2006, El Inca would get a WBA super featherweight title shot against Panamanian Vincent El Loco Mosquera in Panama City. In an insane all-action fight where defence was completely non-existent, Valero beat Mosquera when his corner pulled him out following a sustained attack in the 10th round. Not long after that fight, a certain Bob Aram was sizing up Valero as a possible opponent for Manny Pacquiao. Aram said it could happen in the Philippines. In a typical boxing promoter style, he would go back on that comment years later, saying the fight was never in consideration. That doesn't surprise me. That's typical Bob Aram and all the other guys. They they, they will always say one thing and then change their mind. And obviously, Bob Aram, lying. I was lying yesterday, that famous quote. This is a good comparison because basically he's bullshitting. But either way, Edwin Valero did become a star in Venezuela following that win and getting the WBA Super Superweight title. And whether he liked it or not, so following the win, he was cautious. He was worried of the ramifications of becoming a celebrity in his home country. Now, it did put a target on his back, and he said himself, I'm afraid of fame. To me, it is enough just to be able to fulfill some whims, like having a good car and good clothes. His wife, Jennifer, had spoken of Valero's paranoia and violent outbursts. 
before he was champion. So the pressure of being a world champion in Venezuela would not have helped his mental state at all. With that in mind, he was happy to receive a congratulatory phone call from the president, Hugo Chavez. He adored his country's leader. He felt like it was the best thing that had ever happened to Venezuela. He helped the poor, and he even said that he helped his mum and other family's relatives, the other family relatives as well. He told me that he was proud of me, and he wanted to see me. In truth, I was a little nervous when I returned to Venezuela. He will receive me, and it will be a real pleasure, said Valero. I mean, that's quite unbelievable. Champion of the world, Hugo Chavez, the, the presidential leader of Venezuela, comes to greet him. I mean, his life, changed dramatically even though he's still not fighting in the States which is one thing he really wanted to do now Edwin became a bit of an enigma to the boxing enthusiasts with his bad boy image and you could probably liken him to as we mentioned earlier Mike Tyson with his uh, destructive best and Valero played up to that image well saying I like to break the face of the man in front of me so <laughs> that just shows you just what Valero was all about it was all about knocking people out and, and at, you know, at a small weight as well and doing what he'd done. He was clearly an enigma and, and people that had wanted to see him in the States, obviously couldn't fight in the States at this time. They were jumping on the YouTube bandwagon, which was making its way, I believe, around this time and, and online and people were making up stories and, and this Valero was a guy that people were saying he's going to be the next big star. Yeah, they were. He was a very hot prospect in boxing. He was a world champion. He was a guy that was unknown to the masses as such, but was a hero in Venezuela. And the popularity and notoriety that he'd earned as a result did lead speculation to to, to really go rife on the boxing forums. People talking about fights with guys like Manny Pacquiao, who you've got to remember at this point, he's an absolute hot prospect. Manny Pacquiao had the wars with... Barrera and Morales and you've even been involved with Marquez at this point so a potential fight with Manny Pacquiao and Edwin Valera was something that people still fantasise about even today. Now while Edwin was desperate to find a break in the boxing world he continued to keep his wife Jennifer and son away from it all. Some believe that he was very possessive over Jennifer and kept her like a prisoner. Even Jennifer's mother said that he didn't want her to go back to school and finish her studies because he wouldn't have been able to control her. During 2007 while Valero was sparring with Marco Antonio Barrera, he actually got involved in an altercation at a parking lot near a nightclub in Caracas. Reports circulated that he'd been disfigured and that maybe some of his old gang members may have been involved. Edwin spoke of the incident in detail. I was attacked. I'd not been in a nightclub for seven years and one evening, on an impulse, I decided to go with my wife. So we left our children with my brother and went to the club. I went as far as changing my look and disguising myself when I went to the club, so I was not to draw as much attention. When the night was over and the club was letting out, someone snatched my cell phone. He continued, Anyway, I guess I was hit with either a bottle or a glass. I don't know. Security intervened, and that is it. These papers say I was disfigured, which is not true. I did cut my forehead, but it is nothing major. <laughs> It's a crazy one. I mean, he's obviously gone out and, and like as he mentioned, he felt that was going to be a target on his back and I think he probably was and maybe someone recognised him when he was a bit younger. They knew who he was and they attacked him. Got nicked through his phone. I believe it was a phone he got from Japan. So I, I believe he mentioned that as well is that they'd never seen a phone like that. Um, obviously, they could sell it for a bit of money. So, yeah, that was a, a crazy altercation there for Edwin and, and his wife, Jennifer. And it was uh, reported around this time 
that many noticed Edwin's temper had increased and he had began to act even more peculiar than normal. Now, he severed his relationship with coach or Jorge Zerpa after an argument about the best way to wrap his hands. So I'm not quite sure what that was about. He was struggling to make weight. So decided to not wash for days because he thought the body might retain the bath water and make him heavier. Plus, he had started to take Viagra, washed down with tequila. I mean, wow. as well as cocaine as well. And the fact that I believe he wasn't eating because he really wanted, he, he couldn't eat for, for about three or four days before the weigh-ins. He was just chewing gum. No food, cocaine, tequila, Viagra. I'm not surprised he's going a bit mad, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, it's quite evident, isn't it? Again, we, we keep alluding back to his earlier life. But obviously, as you've been listening to the episode, you'll you'll hear that it's always been difficult for this guy in his life at the time. He's going through such a difficult time growing up and the temptation was always around him and becoming a celebrity made the temptation even harder for him. And then obviously for him as a fighter to try and make weight and all these different sort of superstitious things that you, some fighters need to do to make the weight makes it even more difficult. I mean, any fighter in fight week who's really struggling to make the weight, who's literally not eating and chewing gum, is absolutely horrible to be around. And a guy like Edwin Valera, who obviously had these tendencies and these violent tendencies, he certainly wasn't the best person to be around at the time. Now, his new trainer, Kenny Adams, did call Edwin a jewel to work with, but he also spoke of his unpleasant side. He drank a little bit, which was kind of a problem. In Mexico, once he grabbed me and started choking me, I said, you better let me go or I'm going to bust you up. He said, okay, Kenny, my friend. He was like that. St. Louis cruiserweight Ryan Coyne was training in the gym with Edwin at the time and he said Edwin was otherworldly he was a world champion drinker when he sparred you could smell it on him the alcohol oozed from his pores and Edwin never drank water we'd run six miles and he'd have four scalding hot black coffees when Coyne asked Edwin how do you run like that Edwin's response has stayed with him forever when you run you have to run like police are chasing you and if they get you you'll never get out of jail and you'll never breathe fresh air again. What a bizarre thing to say. I'm not surprised that Coyne, he said that that phrase, never leave. I mean, what a crazy thing to say. Why do you run like that? He's like, he says something like that. I mean, that's that's madness. That just shows you that, you know, obviously, you know, all the drugs and in the streets that he lived in at a young age stayed with him. And he obviously couldn't shake that. And the paranoia was growing evident as the days and years wore on. And, and on January 5th, 2008, Edwin and Jennifer were officially married. Now, they were they were married in Venezuela, but it was unofficial. So he did call her his wife, but they, they were properly married in 2008. And they had a civil ceremony years earlier, as I mentioned. But this was a big church wedding with all the trimmings. And things got even better when his fortune basically turned. The events turned for him and, and Valero had his American suspension lifted after a fight had challenged his indefinite medical suspension and won. And because of that, Edwin was able to get his American boxing license the following month. Ironically, not in New York. The only state that would actually give him a, a license is the one state that's a bit out there on its own in a way, was Texas. And he said to Texas, he said, thank you to the officials who made this possible and to all the fans who have supported me, I will make you proud. So he gets his suspension finally lifted. He's finally got the opportunity now to fight in America and start earning their mega bucks and start getting the major fights. So by March, 
of 2008. He's sitting ringside at the Pacquiao versus Marquez third fight in Las Vegas in the hope of getting the winner. He said at the event, I have to see my prey closer and they know I can beat them and that's what worries them. He was now also training at the top-ranked gym in Vegas and was continuing to have his wicked ways with all the sparring partners. Now, when Oscar De La Hoya came out of retirement, he actually hired Valero as a sparring partner to prepare him for his fight with Manny Pacquiao, who was also a southpaw. And after two days, Edwin was sent home. Kenny Adams recalls, I remember his brother saying, Kenny, get this monster out of here. (laughs) Rumour has it, or people believe or perceive that the beating that Edwin Valero gave to Oscar De La Hoya actually resulted in a little blemish in the eye. And they, they actually believed that that was the reason why he ended up getting battered by Pacquiao the way he did. But that's even near or there. The fact is, is, when you're a sparring partner, as we've done Larry Holmes' career profile, just going off the subject, you don't want to go too hard. But I don't think Edwin Valero quite understood that. And I think in sparring, he took it as it was a proper fight. He didn't ease off in any way. And I don't think some fighters, especially even, even around today, are not quite endeared to that. They don't quite like that. They prefer to hold back a little bit. So, yeah, I think that was the result of Oscar De La Hoya's brother sending him packing. I mean, in, in February 2009, Edwin Valero actually signed with top rank, even though the Japanese contacts did warn Bob Arum. They said he had problems with drinking, he had problems with cocaine, but Arum ignored it. Bob actually said that Edwin was kind of funny. And Edwin Valero is one of the most exciting fighters in the world today. <laughs> well, I bet he goes back on them comments today anyway, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, of course he does. <laughs> well, he was. He was. It was true at that time. He was one of the most exciting fighters in the world. And as I said earlier, these fights with Pacquiao and guys like Marquez were, were so close to happening. So Bob Aaron was looking at his cash cow right there. Now, after a failed attempt from Ricky Hatton's camp to get a fight with Edwin as preparation for Pacquiao and Golden Boy trying to re-sign him, Robert Alcazar, a guy who trained De La Hoya for many years, was brought in as his trainer and his new manager. Jose Castillo was allegedly behind replacing Kenny Adams because Edwin wanted a Spanish speaker in his corner. Just before the beating of Antonio Pizzula, Valero was asked by the Texas Boxing Commission to not wear the Venezuelan colours on his shorts. And in protest, he wore the Venezuelan colours on his shorts and went one <laughs> step further and even added the country's colours to his gum shield as well. <laughs> if that wasn't bad enough, he also went to get, and this is what people will probably remember Valero for, he got a tattoo on his chest with the Venezuela flag with the slogan, The True Venezuela, and a picture of Hugo Chavez. Now, his relationship obviously blossomed with the president, Hugo Chavez, since 2006, who presented Edwin Venezuela's National Hero Award. quite sure I've never heard of that award, but he obviously did that, and he often went on to Chavez, went, went to Chavez events, but he was a frequent guest on a show, I mean, this is crazy, I mean, this is mad, but there was actually a show in Venezuela called Hello President. It was a television show that was hosted by Hugo Chavez himself, and that was where he would frequently go. So, Texas obviously asked him to to just not wear your colours. Obviously, they had some sort of problems with Venezuela. I didn't like Hugo, but he went against it and just went crazy and decided to put that mad tattoo on his chest. And obviously, if anyone hasn't seen Valero, go and have a look at some pictures of you. It's a prominent picture of the Venezuela flag and Hugo Chavez on his chest I think that's a bit of a crazy thing to do for but you know you wouldn't I mean who else would do it 
Edwin Vieira, quite simply. I mean, he was mad. And not only was the president giving these awards out, which were probably just random awards he wanted to give out to recognise a guy like Edwin Valero. The fact that he also had his own show called Hello President just made me completely laugh at the fact that this guy, who was the president of that particular country, did he not have any better things to do and decides to make his own TV show up and he hosts it and he gets Valero on there constantly? I just, I couldn't believe it reading that, that these things actually happened. But again... Different strokes for different folks, as they say, and this was certainly that case in Venezuela. So, after Valero demolished Petulia in Edwin's first fight with Aram, he promised he would beat everyone, and he said, this is the beginning of big things, no man can take my punch. And even Bob Aram said after the knockout, I think he's the best lightweight in the world. So, for some reason, Valero chose to live in Caracas with Jennifer and his children, known to be one of the most dangerous cities in the world a place where murder tallies were slightly below that of a war zone. Now, he began spending more time in a bar called the Hangar and drink excessively. He was arrested for assaulting a policeman, dangerous driving and carrying an unlicensed gun. While all of this was going on, Jennifer was shot in the left leg. The bullet went through her thigh and out of her ankle. Edwin said it was a bike drive-by shooting with no investigation. So he decides, even though he's a world champion... He's one of the hottest prospects out there. He's got this big contract with Bob Arum. He decides to live in an absolute war zone and put himself and his wife and his kids in danger. I mean, the one thing that that pops out to me, you know, he gets arrested for driving around with an unlicensed gun. We know that he's a young nipper driving around the streets of Venezuela robbing people at gunpoint on mopeds. And yet his wife gets ironically shot in the leg by... A drive-by shooting with someone on a motorbike. I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't... The fact he's out of his face all the time, I wouldn't be surprised if it was him that did it. It was no investigation stuff. We're just making assumptions here. But something not quite right there. And, and in 2009, Valero was to fight Umberto Soto on the undercard of Pacquiao Cotto. Obviously, this is, this is all to do with promoting Pacquiao Valero for everyone down the line. But the fight would never happen. Now, his visa was denied because Valero had been arrested in Texas for drink driving while carrying an unlicensed gun. Then in September, police were called to the home of Edwin's mother. He was claiming that his younger brother, Louis, was in love with Jennifer. So he smashed some windows and allegedly hit his mum. He was later arrested again, but released after his mother denied the allegations that he had hit her. Oh, I mean, there's a, just in that paragraph alone in 2009, that's crazy. I mean, what the hell is Valera? I mean, he's arrested. I mean, he did come out with some bizarre statement to say that because Texas, the boxing authorities asked him not to wear anything Venezuelan, he went a bit too, too extreme and wore everything Venezuelan, even his chest. He reckoned that that was why he was pulled up. Clearly high on drugs, out of his face, unlicensed gun, absolutely deserved to be pulled up and... Again, I mean, at this point, you're thinking, you know, with Bob Arum, you're, you're at this great stage. You've been world champion. You're now fighting a new division. What are you doing? Just, just it was his own problem. He, it was him. He ruined everything. And, you know, this is a great example of it. An absolute nutcase, to be honest with you. It's telling you, this is, for me, where everything starts to, to go downhill a little bit. He'd, he'd obviously been drinking and, and taking cocaine on and off for years. But what would happen following this was where things would start to take a little bit of a downslide. And this is where 
you know, we start to completely lose respect for him. If you're a fight fan listening to this and you you absolutely love Valero as a fighter, I think listening to what follows now is where you start to think of him as uh, an absolute shit. So after this happened, his family did become worried about his cocaine habits. Plus, Jennifer was also acting quite strange. She was later reported that she tried to commit suicide by overdosing because of Edwin's persistent abuse and unfaithfulness. When Edwin's mum, Elisa, showed up at the house one day, it was a mess, full of empties and a bad smell. Jennifer told Elisa that Edwin had forced her to take drugs. They enrolled in a rehab clinic, but Edwin only lasted a few days before leaving. So at this point, he's really taking a downslide. And his life outside of the ring is reports of him abusing his wife, forcing her to take drugs, absolutely demoralising her, making her probably feel worthless. And yet, none of us would have known this at the time because we all loved him as a, as a fight fan. We loved the guy. He was absolutely amazing yeah. in the ring. But all this was going on outside of the ring. Yeah, it was, it was unravelling, wasn't it? And he was... Literally, the downward spiral. It didn't seem to be any way back. But again, in the ring, as you mentioned, people were still happy with what his performances. Again, you know, we didn't necessarily know all this. We didn't know all this. And but then I was back in the ring on February six, two thousand and ten, for his last ever fight against Antonio DeMarco in Mexico. And it is a fight that will remember him at his best. Now, in the in the second round, DeMarco caught Valero with an elbow opened up one of the biggest gashes on his forehead do you ever I mean it's not quite Badu Jack but it was a bit it was a massive gash on his forehead now he was covered in claret throughout that fight but somehow he managed to keep going and beat DeMarco when his seconds actually pulled him out in the ninth and DeMarco really showed a little bit it was quite remarkable that he managed to stay in there but that everlasting image of Edwin Valero being hoisted up with his face covered in claret and his hair and the Venezuelan flag drooped over him will be something that we'll always remember from him inside the ring. And when he returned from Mexico, he was erratic, and he went on a binge of drink and cocaine, and his brother Edward said he was drinking and acting strange and wanted to fight everybody. Cocaine makes you paranoid. Edward also spoke at times when the family went to visit as well, and he'd go on to say, his obsession with Jennifer was so strong that it bothered him even when her father or brother would give her a kiss. He would say that Jennifer was his and that she belonged to him. A paranoia and his obsession with Jennifer began to drive Edwin crazy. And Edward also mentioned that he always believed people wanted to hurt him. His sister, Saidia, said he believed his mother was in charge of a plot against him and that he thought we wanted to hurt him, that we wanted to kill him. So this is just where it becomes even more darker. The guy's that high off coke and he's, he's that pissed off alcohol and he, the, the head injury that he suffered years before all seemed to be playing a huge factor in his mental demeanour about how he's going about things. I mean, the fact that his wife's brother and father are coming and just giving us a kiss on the cheek so innocently and he's getting really jealous and paranoid about it and, and then feeling like his own family have got this plot to, to finish him off. It's crazy. Clearly, the events of everything, you know, whatever he's taking and uh, the damage to his brain, obviously, is playing a massive part in and turning him into a real uh, a monster. And, and an event turned even uglier on March 20th, 2010, when Jennifer was admitted to hospital with two fractured ribs, perforation 
of the pleural membrane of both lungs, bruises on the thorax, and a deep bite on her back. Now, en route to hospital, Edwin, well, he wasn't in the ambulance with Jennifer, but he was following behind in a car, and he actually jumped out at a red light and went missing for six days. Obviously paranoid, because obviously he had obviously bashed her up. Now, he actually returned to the hospital on March 26th, demanding to speak to Jennifer, but he was denied access before being taken to the police station for a drugs test and questioning. Now, a few days later, he was obviously brought to court and Jennifer did not testify against him. She said that she had fallen down the stairs and the bite marks were from someone who tried to rob her with family member actually verifying her story. Now, Valero was ordered to be admitted to the San Juan de Dios Psychiatric Hospital in Merida for six months while remaining under the police custody to keep him away from Jennifer. Fucking hell, that is absolutely <laughs> mental. This is just getting worse and worse. The deeper we go into the rabbit hole with Evan Valero, the worse and more graphic it gets. So he goes and absolutely bashes the shit out of her, perforates the pleural membrane of both of her lungs, fractures her ribs, uh, strangles her clearly with the damage on her thorax, and then bites her on the back, and then decides, I'm going to get out the car and just leave my car where it is at the red light and fuck off for six days, and, and then decide to turn up six days later. This is obviously some sort of cocaine blackout or some type of blackout that he's had where he's he's probably not even remembered he's done all this and then the fact that poor jennifer has then got a family member to verify the story when it's quite obvious what's happened here let's be frank about it we know she didn't fall down the stairs absolutely no chance in hell did she fall down the stairs to suffer them type of injuries i mean what stairs were they they must have been about six flights bloody up for her to (laughs) suffer that many types of injuries absolutely ludicrous so after that it was three days later he was being escorted to the, the san juan de dios psychiatric hospital and psychiatrist Javier Pinero Alvaro diagnosed Edwin as unstable and impulsive, plus a moderate degree of dependence on drugs. In less than moderate. a week, I'd say it was more than moderate, weren't it? Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> now, in less than a week, and to everyone in the family's dismay, Edwin was discharged on April the 7th, 2010. Even though his brother Edward said, Edwin told a doctor that he was a drug addict that needed help because he felt so close to madness. And this was a quote from Edwin himself to his brother, Edward. Now, when Edwin was released, he confided in his manager, Jose Castillo, and told him that he couldn't be around his wife right now and he needed to be separated from her. So these were his own words to his own manager. So Castillo then signed a bond to agree that he would be responsible for Edwin while he was in Havana in Cuba at a specialist rehab centre, which was arranged by a Chavez supporter. On his way to the airport, Edwin crashes into five cars after apparently overpowering the guarded escorts and carjacking their vehicle before racing off to see Jennifer. I'm I'm sort of laughing here because it's it's just a chain of events where you can't quite believe what is going on. I mean... The authorities, they know that he's beaten Jennifer, almost literally beat her, put her in hospital. You know, there's, there's, he shouldn't be seeing her, but yet he's, I'm just lost for words what's going on here. What the hell are the authorities doing to just let this absolute lunatic roam the streets? Now, on April 17, 2010, 
They'd all coped up Edwin, ignored the judge's orders and went to see Jennifer. He convinced her to get in the car he had rented. Now, he had rented this car, the Toyota, he rented it, with, and he had $90,000, presumably, in a bag, which apparently his mum witnessed was in the bag. So he had $90,000. He apparently rented the car in cash. You know, he's all coked up. He bought, I think he went to some, he went to La Vida or wherever he went, and he bought a shitload of cocaine, like, pounds of the shit so he convinced Jennifer to get in the car and he's rented Toyota and they took a long trip took a long trip with him and they arrived at the hotel which was intercontinental and they checked in at 11.39pm now after Edwin rejected the hotel's first room because it was too noisy he accepted the second room which was room 624 which was located on the quiet side of the building now although he did make one of the most bizarre requests to the staff member and he asked them to search under the bed and in the wardrobe to make sure that no one was hiding i mean this is just long bells are fucking ringing surely someone needs to just call the police and get this guy locked up now absolutely mental this is where it becomes ultimately the darker side of boxing the epitome of what this series is all about so at 5 30 the next morning valero approached the front desk now, there are two versions of the story. In one, he was barefooted and covered in blood before calmly announcing that he'd killed his wife. And in the second report, he was clean, like he'd had a bath, and nervously pacing the corridor with a cup of coffee when the receptionist asked if she could make a wake-up call to Mrs. Valero, and Edwin responded chillingly, She won't answer. I killed her. Former lightweight boxing champion Edwin Valero has been arrested for allegedly killing his wife. The 28-year-old is a household name in Venezuela, and police have said he was arrested after they found the body of his wife in a hotel where the couple was staying. Police say Valero left the hotel room at about dawn Sunday and allegedly told security he had killed the woman. Police say she had three stab wounds on her body. Wow, Jesus, this, this was so preventable. I really believe that this could have been prevented. Had Jennifer was even, she should have been with someone. Someone should have stopped from getting in his car. Ah, oh, it's chilling. So the police arrived half an hour later and they arrested Valero after finding Jennifer's body on the floor with her throat slit. Edwin left with the police with no resistance and was Pritchard covered in no blood. There was no blood over him whatsoever. Now, I'm sure within that half an hour, I mean, he could have gone and got a wash. So I'm, I'm guessing that the second version of events is probably more accurate than him covered in blood and just saying he murdered his wife. Edwin, obviously, uh, he was taken to the General Command Police Station in Carabobo, and Valero told police that gangsters did it. Bugs killed Jennifer. He also called his cousin, who was Kenya Fino, from the hotel saying the same story that he also told police. And he said, in his own words, Jennifer was dead in the hotel room in Valencia, and that she had been killed by some thugs who had been pursuing them. Edwin Valero described the night before in a statement saying that he drank vodka and sniffed cocaine with Jennifer while on a road trip. He was apparently en route to rehab in Cuba, but he lost his passport, so he waited in LaGuardia, waiting for his passport to arrive. While driving, he noticed that a car was following him, so he stopped at a checkpoint and spoke to an officer who told him to go to the Intercontinental. Although he could not remember which checkpoint it was, Thinking they wanted to kidnap him, he went to the hotel, thinking a setup was being planned because a stranger had said hello to Jennifer. They went to the room and Jennifer went to sleep while Edwin stayed up drinking until he passed out. The next thing he remembered 
was waking up next to Jennifer on the floor, and she was dead. Wow. I mean, what a crazy story. And so the crime scene photos, uh, there was a bit of a, a, a long thing with these, but I think, I believe it took like near on a decade to actually get a description on these. So, so the crime scene photos, so Jennifer on the floor with an empty bin on its side next to her and empty beer cans and spirit bottles arranged neatly on the floor by the bed. She was on her back, her head turned right with her eyes closed. A brown shirt was pulled up to reveal her stomach and her blue jeans were unbuttoned with her bare feet crossed against the wall. Her throat is cut neatly with blood smears on her chin, right shoulder, chest area and left arm. Three wounds were reported, but only the throat would be visible. She was likely killed on the floor while she slept. Wow, that's pretty graphic and pretty grim. So for anybody that's squeamish... Uh, I apologise because that is very, very graphic and very grim and it really puts into that picture of, of what you can imagine the scene was like when the crime scene forensic officers came and, and seen that. Now, Amy Brodeur, a forensic science expert from Boston University School of Medicine, was shown the crime scene photographs and she gives her theory on it. The stain on the floor looks clotted. There is a heavy amount of blood spouting out of her neck or possibly from her bleeding face down and then later rolled over. There is a fair amount of blood on the bed, the sheets, pillow and maybe on the bedspread too. Some of it appears to be from active bleeding, not simply from the curler wiping his hands or the blade. She appears carefully situated, so was possibly positioned. So it looks like she was probably killed in her sleep and then moved to the floor area, which is just, it's all a bit bizarre isn't it now it is estimated that jennifer had been killed at approximately well they say estimated then they say approximately so i'm guessing approximately 4 a.m which means valero sat with her dead body for an hour and a half which is just crazy so maybe he was cleaning up the crime scene cleaning himself up maybe so no murder weapon was ever found but but for forensic experts believe that she was killed with a scalpel which is again it's beyond me i mean it was like a neat cut it's, it's, it's a scalpel i mean how do you get a scalpel it's just it's just mad police in venezuela say boxer edwin valero has killed himself in his jail cell just hours after he was arrested in the killing of his wife the former lightweight champion used his own clothes to hang himself from a bar in his cell Valero showed signs of life when he was taken down, but died a short time later. Valero was under arrest for stabbing his 24-year-old wife in a hotel room over the weekend. He allegedly left his room and told security that he had killed his wife. His death ends a string of legal troubles for the boxer. Last month, he reportedly entered a rehab facility for drug and alcohol addiction. He was also arrested for harassing his wife and threatening medical personnel who treated her at a hospital for serious bodily injuries. So on the night of April 18, Edwin Valero was taken to his cell and apparently pleaded with the guards to stay, uh, saying, I feel so alone and I need to talk to somebody. They took away his shirt and shoelaces and he was placed on suicide watch. Now, approximately at 1.30 in the morning, a fellow prisoner heard a noise coming from Valero's cell and called the guards. They rushed over to find Valero hanging by his neck. He had used his trousers as a noose. Authorities found a picture of Jennifer and their children in Edwin's clenched teeth. By 4 a.m., Valero was in the morgue, and the toxicology report said he was loaded to the grills with cocaine. 
it's just it's difficult to describe the the feelings really because on one in one sense you feel that it was kind of just deserts for what he did to his wife but then in the same sense you feel sorry that this was a guy who nobody clearly looked after nobody intervened and he's nobody was there for him and nobody was there for her either and it's just a really really sad state of affairs that he went on to commit murder and then killed himself which quite obviously leads you to believe that he knew what he was doing and i refer back to the incident with chris benoit and his family how he killed his family and then hung himself and this is very very eerily similar to to what happened there now questions were obviously raised as to how he was able to kill himself whilst he was on suicide watch a spokesman for the police admitted that valero should have been put in a straitjacket but they didn't have the equipment at their disposal so they literally just left him in there they thought they'd done the right thing by taking things that they believed he weren't going to be able to kill himself with but yet he manages to kill himself with his own trousers which again i find quite phenomenal that the police weren't able to to identify something like that given what had happened now his friend, President Hugo Chavez, blamed the Venezuelan media for the whole ordeal, claiming that a siege on Valero had been planned for months and that the media needed to destroy him because he was a political symbol. He said, Today, like vultures, they feed on the corpses of Jennifer and Edwin. Chavez would later pass laws preventing reporters from asking questions at murder scenes. Police officers who shared information with the press could be punished and victims' relatives are asked not to speak with reporters. After four months after the death of Jennifer, a Venezuelan court banned newspapers from printing bloody photos of murder victims. When Chavez got cancer sometime thereafter, there was a movement among Chavistas to dig up Valera's grave one more time and remove his tattoo because they believed that it was harming Chavez's health. It's absolutely mental, isn't it? I mean... Uh, oh, I'm lost. Uh, I really don't quite get what on earth has gone on. It is just crazy, and that is just it just shows you the the craziness of some of the people. So Edwin Valero was buried next to Jennifer on April twenty first, two thousand and ten, and the fact he was buried next to Jennifer as well that must not have been nice for Jennifer's family. And his coffin was actually draped with a Venezuelan flag. Uh, 3,000 people attended. There was a parade of trucks and motorcycles that blew horns and sirens. Some fans even chanted, champion, champion. Jennifer's young brother, Urel, actually sparred with a friend in front of Valero's coffin and said, he was someone big. It breaks my heart to see him like that, dead. He still had a lot to give. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gobsmacked that, that her brother would be that way, but I suppose... I don't know if that was the way it was, I suppose. Crazy. That is absolutely mental. So, the younger brother of Jennifer is sparring, like, mimicking sort of Valero because he was so, obviously, an adulation of, of Valero. Valero would become that much of a national hero that people refused to look at the fact that he'd actually killed his wife and then killed himself. And that's what is absolutely the craziest part of this particular story, that people are essentially are brushing that act under the rug. And I find that quite hard to believe. Now, many in Venezuela that adored Edwin Valero believe his story, that gangsters killed Jennifer. Even his own mother, Alicia, and his brother, Edward, are still adamant that he was innocent and believe that he was murdered, so much so that they demanded a new autopsy. On May the 13th, 2010, Valero's body was removed from its grave for further examination. Apparently, 
His body was so decomposed to his state where he was unrecognisable, but the tattoo was still clearly visible. The conclusion was he died by hanging or mechanical asphyxia. In December 2016, a movie called Elenco premiered in Venezuela. It only lasted three weeks because the Valero family protested that it might affect Edwin Jr. and Jennifer Rosalind, and the Supreme Court decided it was an invasion of privacy. Wow. Absolutely just the most craziest story. Uh, honestly, it's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Just the whole thing from beginning to the end when you read it out and, and and we uh, we sit here and and try and break it down and and you know it, it just haunt, it's haunting it really is and and some of the you know the, the, so many people to blame and the fact that the Venezuelan people themselves are several not not just the general Venezuelan population that I'm not going to throw them over a blanket but you know there are so many that believed he was innocent and there was some bizarre bizarre stories that came out after which which we could have added to this whole story but. I just think it complicates things. I mean, there was one story where someone believed that Jennifer was the coke addict and Jennifer was the one that attacked him and she hurt herself and blah, blah, blah. And they, they, it was like people just did not want to believe that Edwin Valero was this, this monster. Unfortunately, you know, with the events that happened in his life, with the accident, with the constant drug taking, the drink, that just it just created... He'd become a bit of a schizophrenic. And I believe he's, he's the auntie that said he was a schizophrenic. He was actually diagnosed by a doctor as schizophrenic. But again, it was something that medical reports just failed to pick up on. And, and he should have been put in a penitentiary or some sort of rehabilitation clinic and kept there against his will and looked after because he was a danger to society and he was a danger to Jennifer. And he killed a young woman in a tragic, awful way. It's quite the only way I can put it. There was no way for me. I don't believe gangsters did it. I believe it was Edwin Valero. I don't know about you, Sean, but I don't believe this bullshit. I think it was him. I think most people that listen to the episode and the factual information that we've provided in the episode, I think will quite wholeheartedly agree that it was him. He, he killed his wife and he killed himself as a result of the act. And I think many Venezuelans will probably refuse to admit that is the case and they will always believe the story that they want to believe which is that he died a hero and unfortunately that that wasn't the case the the evidence is there and it's been widely documented but the venezuelans have tried to keep it under wraps for so so long and it's only really recently in the past couple of years where more and more people have been digging into this even 10 years after the fact and more authors and journalists have started to get more information from various sources but all their stories all come back the same they've always found it very difficult to source information regards to Edwin Valero's suicide and the murder of his wife Jennifer because they don't want that information fully being released into the to the wider public domain because of the fact that it paints Edwin Valero in this light, which is a, a psychopathic, schizophrenic murderer. And that is ultimately what he unfortunately turned out to be. And then he made the act to, to commit suicide. And unfortunately, there was nobody there to intervene. And that's the sad, sad part of this story is that the amount of times during the course of the episode that we've given this information of incidents that have happened where people could have intervened but just decided not to for whatever reason eventually they they should have some sort of accountability for it they probably do there's probably a few people out there that probably still feel that guilt today and that guilt will stay with them for the rest of their life because there's definitely intervention methods that could have been put into place sooner and could have prevented all this tragedy from happening 
yeah, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And I, I, there was, I mean, what we were running through the timeline there, especially towards the end, it was just, uh, it just unraveled, didn't it? The way he just, his life just derailed. And it was evident, you know, from the point of winning that, just before the DeMarco fight, but then after that, even more so, the family. And the fact they were hiding things, Jennifer clearly was beaten up by him. From that point, he should have been separated and he should have had an injunction against him for, for, and he should have been arrested as soon as he went to see her. Obviously, even even when he did, she did he did manage to get her in the car. You know, there were still moments there where people knew who he was when he arrived and he's, he's asking the reception and the staff to, to go and check in the wardrobes under the beds. The alarm bell should be ringing. Um, if she was killed at, what, 4am in the morning, there was time for them to have called the police. You know, they, if they were there in half an hour, maybe they could have been there within an hour and they could have said something, that something's not quite right. I'm not blaming them. Jesus, no, I'm just like, it's the whole package of everything. I mean, as you say, there was intervention that could have been made. It didn't happen. So it's just a, an awful story, really tragic. I mean, there was one I knew about, but when I, as we go more into detail with it, it's just, it does really send the hairs on you the back of your neck stand up because it's it's like a story it certainly does and i hope that people in some respects have enjoyed being able to sit down and and listen to more detail about the life and the times of edwin valero the murder of his wife jennifer the suicide of himself and this will probably give people more of an insight into what really happened back in 2010 and obviously all the information that has been sourced by ourselves has also been sourced by various other people out there and and we've got the benefit of being able to also source that from them so it's been a, a bit of a dark episode for this series but that is the epitome of what the darker side of boxing is all about and we've enjoyed sitting down to really go through and, and dig into the life and the career and the death of Edwin Valero and if you have obviously enjoyed the episode of course go and let us know on social media you can find us on twitter at darker underscore side underscore pod and the facebook page is btr boxing podcast if you've not already subscribed to the darker side of boxing please go and do so on apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review and also you can check us out on google Podcasts, spreaker stitcher player fm or even spotify as well we hope you've enjoyed this darker side of boxing episode the case of edwin valero we hope it's not left you feeling grim and full of dread but i hope it's been able to put a bit of light into a fighter that was known as one of the potential greatest fighters of all time that just life outside of the ring got the better of and unfortunately took a a dark turn and, and his untimely demise of himself and his wife. Yeah, it really did. And, and yeah, hopefully uh, don't listen to it too late, not just before bed, because there are some graphic details in there. We've got to get it, got to get the information in. You've got to, we've got to understand that this guy was, was a bit, was a monster. Big shout out to Berserk. If anyone hasn't read the book as well, please have a look at Berserk. It's a great book. Yeah, do that. Um, it was a book we read and obviously as well as going online and other various podcasts, etc., just listening in and trying to get as much information as we possibly could. We hope you enjoyed it. And as I say, we'll continue to do it and just keep giving us ratings and keep following us and, and spreading the word. The dark side of boxing is coming at you. It's going to be a good one. Thanks very much for listening, fight fans, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Darker Side of Boxing.
Podcast Network.